Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Folklore. I'm Rachel Hopkin, one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm talking with Jean Friedman, who has recently published a book about Peggy Seeger, which is called Peggy Seeger, A Life of Music, Love and Politics. Hello there, Jean. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Um, So before we move into talking about the book in any way, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in folklore and folk music? Surely. Um, Quite honestly, I don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in folk music. I grew up with it. I grew up during the 60s. um, So I heard it all around me. My family was interested in it. My parents had been listening to folk music since the 30s or 40s. So that was always there. That was always a part of me. And so it was sort of a natural progression with my my love of folk music to study folklore as an academic discipline. That way I, I got to listen to folk music and say I'm working at the same time. That sounds perfect. Um, And one of the questions I like to ask uh, the guests on this podcast is what is folklore? Because um, it can, the word itself is quite tricky. So do you have any kind of like standard definition of it or, or a conception of it that you can share with us? Yes. I mean, if I if I have to answer that question in one sentence, I say it's the study of tradition and ordinary life. Um, and that's sort of the, the capsule definition that I use. If I'm teaching a folklore class, I go into a lot more detail. But um, that's basically the one I use, tradition and everyday life. Because some things we study in folklore are not tradition in the strictest sense of the term, such as personal narratives, um, but they are are all part of the folklore world. Given the subject of of, uh, your book, I wondered if you have any kind of standard definition of folk, what is folk music or what is a folk song, which is something that you look at a lot within the book as well. Yes. Yes, I mean I have I have one chapter entitled "What is um, What is a Folk Song" and another one called "What is a Folk Revival," um, but uh, again the definition I use is it's fairly loose. It's traditional music and music written in that style, so that if you're looking at Anglo American music, which is mainly what I do, you can look at traditional ballads, work songs, lullabies, play party songs, all these songs that have come down to us uh, from generation to generation, largely anonymous. But you can also look at music that was deliberately written in that style, Um, sometimes by people who wrote in that style because that's the kind of music they knew and that's the kind of music that they loved, and other people who were part of the folk revival as I was and who chose this music because it was it was the the kind that they felt they liked the best and they could say the things that they wanted to say. So um tell me about how your book came about. This is um uh, the first I think but am I writing thinking the first major biography of Peggy Seeger? Yes. Yes, it is. So, tell me how it came about. 
Well, um, almost by accident, or maybe serendipity would be the better word. Um, I had met Peggy originally in 1979 when I was an undergraduate studying theater in London. And she and Ewan McCall and several other people ran a folk club called the Singers Club, which had been going since the early 60s. And so I became a regular of of this club. And uh, Peggy and I stayed in touch after I left England, and um, then I got a PhD in folklore, and fast forward several decades later, a friend of mine uh, was the editor of the Journal of American Folklore, Um, and this was just about 10 years ago. And she asked me to review a book about Ruth Crawford Seeger, Peggy's mother. So I had a couple of questions about one of the, it was a book of essays, and I had a a couple of questions about one of the essays, which was about Peggy. So um, I emailed her, can we talk about this? She said, sure, but let's talk by phone. So we did, and um, after I had asked her the questions, we were just chatting, and she said, do you know of anyone who's interested in writing my biography? And without missing a beat, I said, I'll write your biography. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we we talked about it a bit more. Uh, She asked me to send her some things I'd written. And then she came to visit about six months later. And we talked about it and decided that, yep, we were going to go ahead with the project. And that was that. Can you, I mean, had you had any idea of writing her biography or indeed anybody's biography before that? I mean, what made that that answer come out so quickly? No, I hadn't really thought of writing a biography. I had written an article about her and Ewan many years before for a, a publication called the Fast Folk Musical Magazine, which was a um, magazine and album at the time that was produced in, in Greenwich Village. Uh, near where I was living. And um, so I had written about her, but I loved her music. There, uh, there was something about her music that I just found incredibly compelling, beautiful. And um, so when she said, do you know of anyone who'd like to write my biography? My immediate thought was, oh my gosh, I'd get to spend all this time listening to Peggy's music. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And also I'm a folklorist and I'm a writer and it just, everything just seemed to come together with that one project. And so was it wonderful listening to all of her music in the process of writing the biography? It was, yes. I I got to hear lots and lots of music that I had never known about, going from the very, very early days when she was a a teenager doing traditional songs right up until her most recent album in 2014, and everything in between. Work that she did on her own, work that she did with her family, with Ewan McCall, with other people, with radio ballads, you name it. As your uh, the subtitle of this book indicates, a life of music, love, and politics. You're dealing with quite a lot of different things going on in Peggy Seeger's um, seemingly very rich life. I wonder how you 
began to think about organizing this biography? That's a good question. I mean, in a way, uh, a biography has a built-in organizational principle, the person's life. And um, so that's mainly how I did it, by the, the chronology. But then, of course, you can't say everything about a person's life. So you have to decide what's the most important, where exactly are you going to start? I actually started several decades before Peggy was born and discussed her parents because they were very influential on her life, their work. And um, much of her work shows a, a tribute to Charles Seeger and Ruth Crawford Seeger. Um, and so it was largely chronological, but with some things getting more weight than others. Okay, so why don't we start then with with hearing about her early life and her family background, because as you say, it's incredibly important and very um, unique. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, let's see. Charles Seeger was a composer, classically trained composer, who discovered folk music in the early decades of the 20th century. His initial idea about folk music had been sort of in tune with what a lot of classically trained musicians thought is that it's sort of nice, but it's dead. And um, then he started going to places where people played folk music, and he discovered it wasn't dead after all. And um, in the in the 30s, he worked for a number of New Deal organizations in which his job was collecting folk music. So he would go throughout the country, uh, collecting this music and preserving it and um, learning a great deal about folk music, so much so that he stopped being interested in being a classical composer and started becoming more and more interested in being a collector and promoter of folk music. Now, Ruth Crawford Seeger was also a classically trained composer. Her first brush with folk music was actually when she was living in Chicago and Carl Sandburg um, was looking for a piano teacher. And so he hired her. And then he was doing a, a songbook, a, a, a collection of, of folk songs, one of the very first. And he asked her if she would do the arrangements and the um, transcriptions for him. So that was really her introduction to folk music. And she also became a, a devotee of folk music, using it in her own compositions, using it in her piano teaching, and then going to create uh, three folk song anthologies of her own that are still used. Um, so her... Uh, Peggy describes growing up in her parents' household, there was always music going on. There was her father had grown up in Mexico. He played the guitar and played Mexican folk songs. Her mother was doing all sorts of different folk music projects when Peggy was a child, from doing the transcriptions for several of Alan Lomax's books and Ben Botkin's books. Um, Ruth Crawford Seeger was also a teacher, and uh, she actually, her most famous folk song anthology, which is American Folk Songs for Children, began when uh, Peggy's little sister, Barbara, was at a cooperative nursery school, and the mothers were all required to do something to help out at the school, and so Ruth's um, assignment was to do something musical. 
And so she came up with these musical games based on folk songs. Like she would take a song like Mary Wore Her Red Dress. And this song is Mary Wore Her Red Dress All Day Long. And she'd go around the room and look at all the children. And she'd go, Jenny wore her blue shoes or Johnny wore his red shirt. And so she would remake these songs dependent upon what the children were wearing that day. And the kids loved it because the songs were about them. They could sing them. And she saw how much that they enjoyed this music. And she thought, hmm, I bet other children would enjoy it. So she put together initially just a booklet, um, American Songs for American Children. And it became so popular that um, she was asked to do a, a, a book um, American Folk Songs for Children, which became fantastically popular and is still used to, to teach music to children. So in this uh, background, we can imagine that uh, all of the children might, um, all of the Seeger off- offspring might show musical aptitude. But was that the case? And, and did, uh, when did Peggy's musical aptitude begin to reveal itself? Yeah, that's a good question. Peggy, of the, the four children that Charles and Ruth Crawford Seeger had, Peggy, as a, as a youngster, was considered the musical one. Her older brother, Mike, wasn't interestingly enough, even though he did go on to to become a professional folk musician and a marvelous instrumentalist and a a collector of music. But Peggy was the one who said to her mother when she was six, I want to learn to play the piano because Ruth was mainly being a piano teacher. That's how the bulk of of Ruth's income was, was through piano teaching. So Ruth started teaching uh, Peggy to read music and also to transcribe because she was also, Ruth was also doing transcriptions for various books. And so she, she decided, well, Peggy can, can learn how to do this. And so Peggy did learn how to transcribe. Now, interestingly, Mike did not learn how to read music or to um, or to transcribe, but he had a marvelous ear. And when Peggy and Mike were teenagers, they decided that they wanted to learn to play the banjo from uh, Pete's banjo book. Pete was their half brother. Charles Seeger had been married uh, once before and had three sons by his first wife, so Pete was their their much older half brother. And uh, he'd put out this uh, book about how to how to play the five string banjo, and so Peggy and Mike decided that they were going to learn how to play the banjo from uh, from this book, and they did. And Mike discovered that he didn't need to learn uh, music um, by reading it; that he his ear was good enough that he could learn a multitude of instruments. Uh, just by ear. So they they became the, the two very musical ones. Peggy's younger sister, Barbara, uh, was, was not nearly as musical. She liked it, she enjoyed it, but never did it professionally. Um, Except, well, she did sing on a couple of albums that Peggy made as, as a, um, as a young, very young woman. And then Penny also liked it and was good at it, but again, didn't do it professionally, except for a few albums that she made with, with the family. Right. Thank you. So when did um, music begin? When did she begin to think of music as being her life's work? Yeah, that's a that's a good question because she, when she went off to college, she went off to Radcliffe in the in the fall of 1953, and she wasn't sure what she wanted to major in. Um, 
possibly music, but it was it was not really music was was sort of like breathing to her. It was so um, so natural that she didn't even really consider um, consider it as a career. And in some ways, she she was not sure she wanted to be a musician because when when she wasn't singing folk music, she got very nervous when she performed. When she was singing folk music, she was fine. Oh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, but she did study some music classes at Radcliffe. They're, they were, again, it was so so much a part of what she did. And then in the fall of 1953, her mother died. And this was a, a obviously a huge blow to her emotionally. It was also a huge blow to the Seeger family financially mm-hmm. because Ruth had been the main breadwinner and as a piano teacher. And um, without her income, Peggy was concerned that she might not be able to continue uh, with college, that there might not even be enough money for her tuition. And so she was talking to some of her friends. This was during the sort of the springtime of the folk revival. So she knew lots and lots of people who were interested in folk music. There were all sorts of sings and hootenannies and things going on in the Boston area. And a couple of her friends said, well, why don't you make an album? And so that's how her first album came about, which was made in the summer between her freshman and sophomore years. It was a collection of um, virtually all traditional American folk songs. And that was the, the sort of the, the beginning of getting her, her foot into the um, sort of her, her toes wet um, into the, the field of being a professional musician. And she started getting gigs in the Boston area. It was the way I put it is the Seeger name opened doors, but her talent got her through. That people mm-hmm. would say, Oh, Peggy Seeger, Pete Seeger's sister. And then they'd hear her play. And it wouldn't matter what her name would be because she was so good. She was so talented. So that's really when she started off as a as a professional. So I think it we come then to a, a kind of really important shift in her life when she arrived in Europe and then in London, um, uh, more specifically. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened in that period? Well, at the, at the end of her sophomore year of college, her father remarried and uh, moved to California with, with Peggy's two younger sisters. And Peggy thought, well, you know, maybe it's time for me to make a change too. She wasn't sure she wanted to, to stick around Boston. But her eldest brother, technically her half-brother, Charles Seeger III, was a, um, a scientist at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. And so she decided to take what she thought would be a year off and go and live in Europe, stay with her brother's family, study at the University of Leiden, and then come back to the States and finish her college education. So she moved to Leiden. She started studying at the University of Leiden, but she kept getting these music gigs and she kept um, playing music and that was starting to absorb her more and more. And um, then slightly um, slightly before Christmas, she got an old friend of hers came by and um, said, would you like to hitchhike around Europe? And Peggy said, sure. And so they hitchhiked around Europe. They got involved with uh, playing and singing for a Christmas play in Berlin. And then she got a um, uh, some friends 
invited her to go on a trip to Scandinavia. So she was getting ready to do that when she got a phone call from Alan Lomax, who was an old family friend. And Alan Lomax, of course, was a great name in the in the folk revival. Uh, had learned folk song collecting from his father, John Lomax, but at this point was doing things that his father had never dreamed of. And this was the fifties. Alan was doing. I was living in London, and he was doing a, a collection of. European folk music, but he also had loads and loads of plans. And he wanted to do a production of Dark of the Moon, which is a play that uses American folk songs. And he thought Peggy would be perfect for it because they needed a banjo player. And mid-50s in England, there were very few banjo players. So he called Peggy and said, can you come to London? And I've got this idea for a, a play Dark of the Moon, and I also want to form a folk group, and we need a banjo player, and can you come? And she initially said, well, no, I, I've got these plans to go to Scandinavia. I've, you know, I've, I've made a commitment. And Alan said, well, that's okay. You go ahead, keep your commitment. Um, you can come in a few weeks. So that's what Peggy did. And she arrived in London in uh, the early hours of the morning in March, and um, she had been on the train from Copenhagen all night, and Alan Lomax picks her up at the train station and says, good to see you. We're forming this folk group called the Ramblers, and you have an audition with them this morning. And so after having been on the train all night, um, she was taken back to Alan Lomax's flat where his girlfriend took one look at her and said, we've got to do a major makeover on you. And um, so they turned Peggy into this high fashion creation of the late 1950s. And then she went and sang the house carpenter and played her banjo in front of this group of folk musicians that was going to form a group called the Ramblers. And one of them was a man named Ewan McCall who was a playwright, folk musician, and he heard her sing and play and fell in love at first sight. So that is how she, um, she came to London, and that's how she met Ewan McCall. And that moment is immortalized in musical history because he wrote a song for her, didn't he? Yes, first time ever I saw your face, which he wrote actually a little bit later. They... Um, there were a couple of problems with their relationship in the beginning. One was that he was 20 years older than she was. She was 20, he was 40. And he was married to somebody else. So there were a, a few bumps in the relationship. And after staying in London for a, a few months, Peggy decided, I, I can't do this. I'm going to and stay with my father in California. And that's what she did. Um, but they kept in touch. And she was doing concerts, and a, she had a, an upcoming gig, and the organizer of the gig said, we'd like you to do a new short love song. Well, she didn't know many new songs. She knew these old traditional songs. So she and Ewan were talking on the phone. And when I tell this to young people, I try to emphasize how unusual it was in the 50s to be having a phone call from California to England. It was very expensive. You, you paid by the, by, the, um, by the minute. 
And it was basically, you know, for births and deaths. So it was, it was unusual just to be chatting on the phone. And Peggy asked him, do you know a short new love song? And he said, well, I'll write you one. And wrote the first time ever I saw your face, which she went off and sang at this gig and, and was very well received. And has since been recorded by many, many artists, um, uh, and it's a very well-known song. But um, so, what was? How did this relationship between them progress, and how important did it turn out to be? Very important. Um, it progressed. She returned to Europe. She went um, again. This was it was. It's an interesting story. Ewan encouraged her to go to the the World Youth Festival in Moscow, and this was a gathering of mainly students, young people, um, organized by a couple of left wing student organizations, and it had started shortly after World War II and. The World Youth Festival has been held sporadically ever since, but the biggest one was the one that she um, attended in, I believe, 1957, summer of 1957. And so she went there as as a musician, as a singer. Um, and at the World Youth Festival, there were the delegations from a number of different countries. At this particular one, there were over 100 delegations, and she was part of the American delegation. It was about 200 people. So they, they gave concerts. They, they heard the music and the culture and saw the dance um, and the um, all sorts of different artistic performances of, of different countries. And then the American delegation was invited to go to China. Now, the U.S. had no diplomatic relations with China at this point. So the um, technically, they were not allowed to go. A U.S. passport said this is not valid for travel to China. And the State Department sent telegrams to every single member of the American delegation saying, if you go to China, you will be considered uh, by the United States to be a willing tool of communist propaganda working against the best interest of your country. And when you return, you may be imprisoned, you may have your passport taken away, you may be fined, lots of bad stuff. So most of the people in the um, American delegation decided this is not worth it, and, and they didn't go. But about 40 people did, Peggy among them. And so they, they visited China for about six weeks. And when it was over, Peggy had to decide, what am I going to do? Well, she didn't want to go back to the United States because she realized that her passport might be taken away. And if she didn't have a passport, she'd be stuck in the States and she couldn't see Ewan McCall. So she decided she was going to wander around Europe until it became clear what exactly she and Ewan were going to do whether they were going to stay together or not, because that was still up in the air. So she went back to Russia for a while. She traveled to Poland for a while. And then she ended up in France for about six months, staying with a friend of a friend. And Ewan would hop over from England to see her, and they'd spend a weekend together. They'd spend a few days together, again, trying to work out exactly what they wanted to do. And then finally, um, in uh, about 1958, Peggy decided that, yes, I do want to stay with this man. Because Ewan 
was was definite about that pretty early on that he even though he was married that he had fallen head over heels in love with Peggy and he was willing to leave his wife and stay with Peggy and Peggy was the one who was uncertain she was much younger you know do I want to break up this this marriage and, and um so finally they um they decided that yes we are going to stay together Again, there were a couple of problems. One is that Ewan was still married. Um, and Peggy could not get a visa to stay in England permanently. She could get a visa to come in for a short time and do some work, but then she had to leave. And uh, another occurrence happened that forced them to make plans in a, perhaps more of a hurry than they would have. Peggy was pregnant. And so she needed a way to to get into England and stay there. And they had a friend, another folk singer by the name of Alex Campbell, who said, well, the easiest way for Peggy to get a permanent visa in the UK is to marry a British subject. Ewan would have been happy to marry her, but he was married to someone else. So Alex Campbell said, I'll marry you. So um, when Peggy was about six months pregnant, she and Alex Campbell were married in Paris uh, by a priest who gave Alex a very stern talking to about getting this young lady in trouble and waiting so long to make an honest woman of her. Uh, but it worked. Um, they, they got to England. She could immediately get a, um, a visa to stay there. She got a British passport in very short order. And then she and Alex Campbell had a nice, quiet divorce. And then she stayed in England for more than three decades. So she's now with this very um, important figure in the uh, British cultural landscape, in particularly in terms of um, uh, activism and uh and so on. So can you tell us a little bit about you and McCall and, and how their partnership progressed in terms of their, their professional uh, identities? Sure. Um, you and McCall had a very different background from Peggy. Peggy was from a middle-class educated um, family and grew up in suburban Washington, D.C. Ewan was from a working class family, grew up in the north of England, Scots emigre family. His father had been a union organizer who was so militant that he was blacklisted for most jobs. And his mother made the, the bulk of the family income working as a, um, a house cleaner and a cleaner of office buildings. Very, very different background. Ewan left school at the age of 14. Um, as most working class children did in England at that time, because that was when public education stopped being free. Um, and he was really self-educated. And he grew up with left-wing politics in his blood. That This was a part of his family's background. It was part of what they did. It was part of what their friends did. And they were also very into Scottish folk music largely because they'd come from Scotland. And so Ewan, even though he grew up, he was born and grew up in England, he felt much more culturally connected to Scotland than to England. And he, he um, made Scottish folk music his, um, his, one of his specialties, at least. So by the time that Peggy met him, 
he had done a great deal. His actually his first artistic interest was theater, and he was involved in a lot of agitprop theater groups in in Britain starting in the 30s. His first wife was Joan Littlewood, and they started the Theater Workshop, which was a theater group that was designed to create uh, politically, socially uh, conscious theater. It it lasted until late 60s, early 70s, so quite some time. Hugely influential and very kind of very well known in in England today, Britain today. Yes. Um, And then Ewan also started getting involved in what was known as the Scottish Renaissance, getting involved in a revival of interest in in Scottish culture, music, poetry, theatre, etc. So by the time Peggy met him, he was getting more and more involved in folk music. He had, had made some albums. Um, for um, uh, various organizations, um, and he was becoming known as as a folk singer. He had a gorgeous, gorgeous voice, beautiful voice. And he was also, because he was a writer, he was also writing songs that other people were taking up and singing. And he had been doing this really, again, since the 30s, when he had been writing songs to be part of the plays that he was that he was writing. Um, so when Heath and Peggy first met, Ewan was um, just getting involved with a, a series of radio documentaries called the Radio Ballads, which were the, the brainchild of a BBC producer called Charles Parker, who was um, very interested in creating a new kind of radio documentary. And the first one was about a man named John Axon, who was a, a train driver. And he had been on a train that would had where the brakes had failed, and so his train was um, going willy nilly down to a place where it was going to crash. And he very uh, John Axon very bravely stayed on this train to warn other people on the way, even while he encouraged the rest of the crew to jump to safety. And the train eventually crashed and John Axon was killed. So it's this very dramatic story. And Charles Parker thought it would make an excellent radio documentary, but he thought that it would do well with, uh, I wouldn't say what was called folk song at the time, because at the time folk song really only meant traditional song, but songs written in the folk idiom, which were starting to become popular um, in Britain. They were already popular in the U.S. And so Charles Parker knew that the person that he really wanted to work with him was Ewan McCall. And their idea was to interview people who had known John Axon, his his workmates, his wife, um, and then to create a script and have actors read it and then intersperse Ewan's songs throughout. But what they found when they did the um, interviews is that the recordings themselves were so powerful that they decided to dispense with actors entirely and just splice in bits of the interviews with some sound effects and with the songs. And so Ewan wrote the songs. Charles did the the editing. What they needed was a musical director, someone who could arrange the music, who could play the instruments, and that's where Peggy came in. And so she started off with this, this first radio ballad and 
it was um, very well received. It was um, played um, on the BBC, got a huge number of accolades, not only from uh, people who who liked radio documentary, but also from people who had known John Axon. So it, it really, it touched a, a real chord. And so Charles Parker, being a, a very enterprising soul, decided this is this can become a series. And the BBC was on board with it. Um, and so it became a series of radio documentaries throughout the, the late 50s into the, uh, the mid-60s for a total of, I believe it was seven, um, about different groups of people with um, Charles and Ewan and sometimes Peggy doing the interviews and then Ewan writing the script and writing much of the music that Peggy started writing some of the music as well. And then Peggy doing the musical direction, the arranging and the playing and the singers they got from different places. There were some young folk singers they worked with. Um, and, um, Again, these were all very well received. One of them, Singing the Fishing, which was the, the third radio ballad, won the Prix d'Italia, which was a, an award given to radio. Um, and so, yeah, so that was the, the way that she started working with Ewan. Yeah, so the, I was really interested to learn about the radio ballads because as a radio documentary myself, these are very kind of... Um, in the canon of, of radio documentaries, these are very significant, very significant uh, pieces. And, and I don't think I would be making radio documentaries in the way that I do if it had not been for these pieces. And in fact, I think they were revived, the idea of them was revived relatively recently. I mean, in the 20, in 20, during the 21st century with, I think, Charles Parker's daughter being involved who is also a radio producer and, and a broadcaster um, so yes they continue to have an impact so so what else was going on apart from radio collaborations uh, what kind of mu- what, what what other musical or professional activities were they collaborating on Okay, lots. Um, this is the late fifties, early sixties. This is the heyday of the folk revival, both in the in the states and in Britain. And so they were they were making albums. They started off um, by looking at predominantly traditional music. They looked at they they made a couple of albums in which they compared um, British and American versions of essentially the same songs, which is a, a fascinating exercise. There's one album called Matching Songs of, of Britain and the U.S. Um, and they also started, um, they gathered a group of young folk singers around them who eventually became the, the critics group, people who wanted to to learn more about uh, the art of folk singing, writing songs, um, political folk music. And that was another thing that they started early on. They they began with traditional music, but political music was was never far from their interest, particularly for Ewan. Ewan was Peggy had grown up in a in a progressive household, but politics she doesn't remember as being a very big part of her growing up years. Not so for Ewan. Ewan was political to the marrow. And Partly through his encouragement, Peggy started getting more involved in political music as well. 
And so in, in 1960, they put out their first album of entirely new political songs called the New Britain Gazette. And they then started to become known as the um, political songwriters as well as traditional songwriters. So they, um, they had this group of young uh, folk singers, folk writers that they were mentoring called the Critics Group. And they did lots and lots of projects. They did albums, they did concerts, they did workshops. And one of the most creative things they did was a kind of folk theater called the Festival of Fools. And this went from the mid-60s through the early 70s. What they would do is they would look at newspapers and look at stories month by month and look for things that were interesting, amusing, shocking, horrifying, anything that could be turned into a song or a skit. And they put together essentially this topical musical review, which was then done at the end of the year uh, around Christmas time. And it contained songs and sketches, and it became very, very popular. And that, as I say, that lasted from the mid-60s through the early 70s. There was also a folk club that uh, they had helped start called the Singers Club, which is actually where I met Ewan and Peggy in the late 70s. It started in the early 60s, and it lasted through, through the 90s. And that was a, um, a gathering place for folk musicians um, of all stripes. So they, they did an enormous amount of work. They, um, Peggy started a magazine called the New City Songster, which was uh, a, um, a collection of new songs. People had written um, new songs that could send it off to them. And if, it, if they thought it was good enough, that, then it would be published in the New City Songster, similar to Broadside in this country. So, uh, yes, an enormous amount of work was going on. Absolutely. Um, and the, the Critics Circle and the Festival of Fools, I mean, that, that was very productive, but I think it was, it was also, there were some uh, dynamics going on within the group that also made it quite yes. tricky, yes, it is was. that right? And, and it eventually sort of exploded. Um, yeah, wow. Um, and it was interesting because I, I interviewed a number of people who had been in the critics group um, for the biography. And so I got a lot of different viewpoints on what was going on. So they, uh, the critics group started out as mainly young folk singers. There was Charles Parker was the exception. He was, he was middle-aged. Um, and the idea uh, was for, and Charles Parker actually came up with the name, the Critics Group, and the idea was to, to do self-criticism, that you would, you would, would um, learn how to be a better singer and a better writer through constructive criticism from, from, your, from your peers and self-criticism from, your, um, from yourself. And um, as, the, um, as time passed, a lot of these young folk singers were starting to develop careers and reputations of their own, and they they felt that Ewan was was holding the reins a bit too tightly, not allowing them to have enough control, and so it and it ended up breaking up rather acrimoniously um, after the last uh, Festival of Fools performance, and um, in fact, there were some members of the critics group who never. Uh, saw or spoke to you and again, Peggy. Yeah, Peggy eventually made some um, 
and built bridges after Ewan's death. But it was it was a huge blow to Ewan. It was um, I remember Peggy described it as, as like being kicked in the teeth with your by your children. That Ewan felt that he was nurturing these young folks, and they were saying, you know, enough, Dad. We we're we're on our own. Um, and you know, I interviewed people who were on the other side, and they said, you know, we were. You know, we had ideas of our own. We had careers of our own. We were we were not being allowed to, um, or we were not being respected in the way that we should have been. So it was it was a tough breakup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then during the after that breakup, I think, um, or, or around the same time, Peggy was becoming more and more politically. Um, Active in realms other than the ones that uh, Ewan McCall was interested in. He was in, he was a communist, is this right? And uh, but she became more interested in women's rights and the environment. Am I right in understanding that? Yes, absolutely. Ewan really came out of the old left, and Peggy was um, Peggy was very much a. I don't want to say a follower because that makes her sound too passive, but she she agreed with him on a on a great many things. He was they were both very involved in the union movement, and they were also involved in things such as the uh, fight against the Vietnam War, the fight against apartheid. Um, and then in the late sixties or early seventies, the the second wave of feminism was in full flower, and for one of the last. Uh, Festival of Fools, Ewan thought it might be a good idea to have a women's song. And he actually suggested to Peggy, why don't you write a women's song for um, for the Festival of Fools? This is topical. This is what's going on now. And Peggy really hadn't, you know, she'd written some sort of mild women's songs, but she hadn't really thought much about the feminist movement. But because you... Um, Ewan had asked her to write a song for the Festival of Fools, she did, and it became her most famous song, I'm Gonna Be an Engineer. And then the song became very popular, lots of women started singing it, and she um, got asked to sing at women's events and women's functions, and they'd say, what other women's songs do you have? She'd go, I don't have any others. And so she started reading about the women's movement and and, looking at the at things from a more and more feminist lens and so she started writing more and more women's songs and to this day this is one of her major concerns the environmental movement was something she really discovered on her own uh, initially because trains carrying nuclear waste were going on the tracks right beside her daughter's school and so she got involved in the anti-nuclear movement in this way. Um, and again, that, that blossomed into a, a full-scale interest in the environmental movement, which is still one of her major concerns. So I remember going to hear uh, Peggy Seeger in concert at the Blackheath Concert Halls. And this must have been either late 90s or early 2000s. And um, she was talking about, she talked about Ewan McCall, obviously, and she said that when you're 20 years old, you take love as, uh, you just expect it. It's a birthright. You're not, it doesn't come as a surprise. But then she said, she talked a little bit about um, when it, 
love comes to you much later in life, it feels very different. So she and Euron McCall were together as a family, even though they never married for a long time, I, I think. They eventually until... married in the 70s. Oh, they did marry. They did marry. They Sorry. married because their accountant said they would get certain tax advantages if they were married. <laughs> That's why my mom just got recently remarried. <laughs> um, uh, but then he passed in, in 1989, was it? Yes, after quite a long period of ill health. And then then what happened next? Okay, so um, she had a good friend named Irene Scott, who's now known as Irene Piper Scott. And Irene um, and Peggy had actually known one another since the 60s. Irene had, had moved to, to uh, London from Belfast, her hometown. And she was a, a folk music uh, lover, aficionado, uh, had a beautiful voice, but was a, was a bit shy about singing, um, even though it, when she did sing, she loved it, but it, you know, was, didn't push herself forward and, and try to make herself into a star, which she very likely could have been. Anyway, they were involved in this group that they helped form, the Beckenham Anti-Nuclear Group. Beckenham was the, the London suburb where they lived. And they were both movers and shakers in the anti-nuclear group. And when when Ewan died, um, Peggy was you know was devastated. Not only was this this man had been her life partner and her musical partner since she was twenty years old, and so her life changed enormously for the worse. And Irene was her mainstay. Her 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 good friend, her the person she could lean on and talk to, and the person who did a lot of gigs with her um, now that Ewan was gone. In fact, Irene had started that when Ewan was ill, and sometimes he'd be unable to go to a gig that he and Peggy had booked, and so Irene would come along. And so Irene was becoming her, her next singing partner and her best friend, and then they fell in love which was not something that Peggy expected. She said she'd considered herself completely heterosexual. And then she fell head over heels in love with Irene. And they are together to this day. That's a nice, a nice story. And I'm right in thinking that they, they, um, Peggy moved back to the States and then came back here, um, not least because I think Irene had some visa issues as well. Yes. They, um, Peggy moved to the, the States um, in uh, 94, um, partly, be, partly because England just had too many memories. Um, with Everywhere she went in England it was a place she had been with Ewan. And so she needed a break with that. And But also, she was a specialist in American folk music, and she had kept this as her specialty. And yet she hadn't lived in America for more than 30 years. And so she was decided it was time to go back and see what America was about. And she moved to Asheville, North Carolina, for a number of reasons. One was it was not far from where her brother Mike lived in Virginia. And it was also the um, the seedbed of a lot of American folk music. It was where Pete had first heard the five-string banjo. And um, so she moved there and lived there for about 12 years. Irene came and started a uh, coffee house and was able to get a business owner's visa, but she couldn't get a green card. 
And then Peggy was offered a job teaching songwriting at Northeastern University in Boston and moved there. Irene sold the business, and without a, um, a business owner's visa, she could only stay in the States for uh, 90 days a year. So she decided, Irene decided she really loved New Zealand, and so um, bought a house in New Zealand, which is where she spends the bulk of her time. Um, and Peggy was sort of, they sort of, they spend various amounts of time with one another. Peggy would fly to New Zealand when it was winter here and summer there. Um, and then Peggy stayed in Boston for um, about four years. And then she decided she really wanted to go back to England. Her children were there. Her grandchildren were there. And she didn't want to be so far away from them. So she returned to England in 2010. And can, lives somewhere near Oxford, I think, right? She lives, yes. And she lives right outside of Oxford. Uh, and she continues to be musically very active as yeah. well, by the sounds of things. Yes, she does. She, um, Her last album came out in 2014. She has another album in the works. Um, she continues to tour. She, um, she tours mainly around Britain now. She no longer does tours in the U.S. She says it's just too much driving. Too, the distances are just too big. But yes, continues to write songs, make albums, tour. She's only 82. <laughs> um, so I'm curious to know what the research process was like and, and your how much um, you were in touch with uh, Peggy as you were writing the book and afterwards, because I, I do note that you um, sent her the manuscript, I think, um, and she read it fully. How, so what was the research process like for you? Well, it was uh, it was fascinating. And uh, Miss Peggy and I worked very closely together. Um, I, I told her that our initial meeting, I said, here are the kind, here's the biography I don't want to write. I don't want to write a biography that's a sort of gotcha biography in which you spill all the dirt. Not interested in doing that. I don't want to write a biography that's like an elongated press release in which you, um, you say only laudatory things about it about the the author's work. I said, I want to do basically an, a, a folkloric academic biography concentrating on the music, but also looking at your life intertwined in it. And she said, that sounds good. Um, so I started off interviewing her. I have, I think, more than 20 hours of, of taped interviews. And um, she was marvelous because she was very, very fair. She would, uh, she would say things like, now, this is how I remember it, but you should talk to other people because they may remember it differently. And when we talked about the breakup of the critics group, she said, now, you need to talk to people on the other side. You need So it, 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 she was wonderfully, wonderfully um, fair and honest. And um, there were a few times when she would say, I don't want you to write about that. And I'd say, fine. But uh, for the most part, um, she was um, very, very open. And so what I would do is after writing a chapter, I would send it to her and say, you know, not, not for her, not to get her permission, but to get her thoughts. And sometimes I'd make factual mistakes that she'd correct. 
Um, she also acted like a very dedicated editor. She would go through it with a fine tooth comb saying things like, this is the wrong word here, pick another word, or you're getting off on a tangent here and things like that. So, I mean, she not only was looking at the content, she was also looking at the style right, because she's right. a very good writer herself. Did you ever disagree? So, oh, I'm sorry. Carry on. No, no, sorry. Did you? Did we ever disagree? Yes, we did. And when we disagreed, Peggy was very gracious. She would step back and she'd say, "Okay, this is your book," um, which I thought was marvelous. And so there were there were a few times in which we in which we did disagree. And I'm curious, did you do the interviews in person or were they over the phone or over Skype or or how did that work? Most of them were in person. Yes, most of them were in person. I um. Um, it, there were some backup interviews, which we um, we did via Skype, and then I would email her uh, more or less constantly. And I interviewed a lot of other people. I interviewed her kids, again, in person. Um, I interviewed some people she had worked with. That I interviewed people that she had gone to school with. I interviewed one of her childhood friends, um, interviewed other members of the critics group, un- other um other singers, other folk musicians. I interviewed Pete. Um, I interviewed her sister, Barbara. Some of these interviews were in person. Some were phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, some were email. Um, mm-hmm. In person is mm-hmm. always better, um, but it's not always possible. Okay. She gave me access to a lot of her private papers. So she gave me the diaries that she'd kept as a young woman. She gave me the letters that she wrote to her father. And she wrote letters to her father up until the time that Charles Seeger died in the late 70s. Um, she, um, she deposited a lot of the papers of, of herself and Ewan McCall, a lot of their, their materials, papers, recordings, um, all sorts of things. Uh, they created an archive at Ruskin College in Oxford. So I did a lot of research there. Um, her parents' papers are at the Library of Congress, so I did research there. Um, so there was a, a lot of different sources. I listened to a lot of recordings. I, um, I read a lot of books. Um, I looked at a lot of um, unpublished materials. So it was, a, it was a real, I sort of felt like it was sort of a patchwork quilt and I was putting things together. Right. Very much like a radio ballad, in fact, uh, I think. Uh, I'm cu- so you mentioned right at the start of the interview that you, the, the, the final chapter is um, called, what is uh, a what folk, is a folk revi- Bible. Bible? So why did you choose that as your final chapter and what did you decide? Well, I sort of looked at it as a, as a tying up because I had this chapter in the middle of the book called, what is a folk song? in which I, I looked at, and that and I, I put that in the middle of the book because it was um, chronologically at the point of the, the mid-20th century folk revival when everybody was asking that question, folk singers and academic folklorists. And they often came to a very different conclusions. And um, when I went to grad school in folklore in um, the 80s and 90s, there was still a certain amount of antipathy between the revivalists and the academics. And I considered myself a bridge, because I always considered myself both a revivalist and an academic. And um, so as time went on, a number of scholars, folklorists, started looking at the revival itself as a subject of scholarly interest. And a number of the, the generation that taught me had come to 
um, academic folklore by way of the folk revival, but they wouldn't tell their professors that. They, you know, they wouldn't tell Richard Dorsen that they had played music in Greenwich Village. And um, so they were the ones who started looking at the revival as, um, as an academic subject. And um, so I, I, got, I got curious, you know, what are these people saying? And, you know, what is a folk revival and um, why, why does it matter? And so I sort of came to the conclusion that folklore and the folk revival, you really can't separate them. The, the whole idea of folk music was born out of the idea that this music is disappearing. Um, that, that idea came around in the 18th century and it hasn't happened yet. But that was, that was the fear that with, with growing capitalism, with growing literacy, with people being able to hear different kinds of music and being able to read different kinds of things, they're going to lose this old stuff that's orally transmitted. And we've got to catch it before it's gone. We've got to preserve it in those days just by writing it down. And then a um, you know, century later with recording technology. And so the, the whole idea of of folklore, I think, was born out of the idea that have we've we've got to hang on to it, revive it, and then create it. Because the first the, the people who are considered the first major folklorists are the Brothers Grimm, and they said we are preserving German folk tales. But if you look at what they actually did, they didn't just write things down verbatim. They took folk tales that they thought best exemplified the qualities of the German people. And if the the material they got from their um, informants wasn't quite to their liking, they changed it. They dressed it up. They took out things that they thought were too irreligious or too sexy or 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 too inappropriate, and they they added things so that. It's almost impossible, I think, to talk about folklore or folk music without talking about the folk revival. So whereas they were considered, you know, almost enemies in the 50s and 60s, the the academic folklorists and the revivalists, I think they're really the same people. Well, that's a lovely point at which to end uh, the book and and then really to end this interview as well. But before we finish, um, can you tell us what you're working on now, if you're working on anything or if you're having a rest? (laughs) Well, what I'm working on now is I am, it's it's rather different. I am different, but similar. I'm interested in the, in the words of, of people and in using people's words in artistic ways, whether it's as part of an academic book or as part of a song or as part of something else. And so my, my BA, my, my first degree is in theater. And I recently got reinterested in theater and um, I took a theater class in a method called Life Stories, which is involves using the words of, of people to create theater. And it can be as simple as a series of monologues or as complex as a scripted production. And for the past three years, um, I've been working with a group here in Washington called New Story Leadership, which brings young Israeli and Palestinian leaders to Washington for the summer. Um, they get to know one another in a way that would be impossible back home. They, they live together. They work together. And I do these theater workshops for them. And... Um, I, I have them tell their stories, and then we act out the stories. They act out the stories. They sort of 
see what it's like from the other person's, the other side's point of view. And then I decided after, after talking to a lot of, of young Israelis and Palestinians that I wanted to write uh, an updating of Lysistrata. So um, Lysistrata is a classic ancient Greek comedy written during the Peloponnesian Wars by Aristophanes when Athens and Sparta were fighting and destroying one another. And Aristophanes was an Athenian. And he wanted the war to end because he saw it was going to be the destruction of Athens if it continued. So he was, he was a comedian. He was the greatest comic playwright of his day. And he wrote Lysistrata basically as a farce. But the idea was that the women of Greece, led by um, an Athenian woman and a Spartan woman, got together and said, we know how to end the war. We are going to refuse to have sex with the men until they sign a peace treaty. And in the play, it happens rather quickly. In reality, it didn't happen, and Athens was eventually defeated. But I decided to rewrite Lysistrata um, from the point of view of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I called it Lysistrata in Jerusalem. And it had a, um, it had a staged reading back in January at the Georgetown Neighborhood Library, and uh, I rewrote it a bit. And there's going to have another staged reading on March 22nd at a uh, local venue called Busboys and Poets, which is a, uh, a bookstore, but it's also a restaurant and a gathering for people interested in social justice. And so that's what I'm working on now. Well, that was not what I was expecting, but that's fascinating. So uh, I will let you go now because I'm sure you have other things to do with your day. But thank you so much for joining us for New Book in Folklore, Jean Freeman, and talking about Peggy Seeger, A Life of Music, Love and Politics, which is a publication by the University of Illinois Press. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.